and happy Mother's Day. I don't have a Mother's Day sermon per se, but I, I did want to acknowledge that and say that I am thankful for a um, culture that can celebrate mothers. They um, are a great joy and an amazing part. I've got a, an amazing, married to an amazing mother in my family, and she is a wonderful mother to our children, and um, I know the grace and thankfulness to experience that. But I also recognize that this can be a hard day for many people, um, people who want to be mothers and can't, or people who have lost mothers, or people who never had the mother that um, they wanted or thought they needed. And so I know this is a hard day as well. And so here's what I just want to say to that is, is my prayer that we can be the kind of church that will welcome mothers who have biological children, but that will also be a church that, that provides children to the childless, to love and to care for, and provides mothers to the motherless. Because Jesus has redefined this, and he's redefined family, and he's brought us together as sons and daughters and mothers and fathers and children to be one family through Christ. And those bonds are stronger than any blood bonds that we can imagine. And so I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for the mothers, and I'm thankful for the people who act as mothers and have acted as mothers to my children, and I'm thankful um, for all of you here today. In 2013, there was a Time magazine cover. It was not flashy. It was a white cover with simply some text on it. Um, The middle word in the text, and you'll see why, um, had reds and blues and yellows, but the rest of the text was black. And, And what it said, and the only thing it said was this, can Google solve death? Can Google solve death? Think about the audacity that that, that we would have to even ask that question. Can Google solve death? Now, it turns out that that the cover perhaps was a bit misleading. Google never claimed that they were trying to solve death, but they certainly had some provocative comments, these leaders of of Google's. And and Google, and one, one person said, you know, we spend so much time and so much money trying to find a solution to cancer. And this leader from Google said this. He said, we at Google are hoping to set our sights higher than that. Higher than that. The occasion for the cover was the founding of a a Google-run company that was getting into biotechnology and things like that. This was back in 2013. And so it led time to ask the question, can Google solve death? Now, in many ways, that's the question we are all asking of ourselves or our doctors. Can we solve death? Death, frankly, is is our one great fear. It's the one last uncharted territory. It's our one common experience across the world. The fact of the matter is, and I'm sorry to bring this to you on Mother's Day, but you can blame the Scriptures. The fact of the matter is, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. And every year we spend countless dollars trying to solve this problem. And, and, and medicine and, and health and extending our lives, there's nothing wrong with that per se, except when it becomes our idol. And when we idolize eternity, worldly eternity, it gets to be a problem. And the reality is, despite all of our idolizing, we've not managed a solution. So instead, we've romanticized death. We call it a transition. We call it a new way of living. 
We call it, we call it sometimes even a, a birth into a, a, a new life. It's just a natural thing that, everything, that everybody experiences. Nobody has any idea from a worldly perspective what that looks like, but we don't want to say it's the end. We don't want to say it's the end. And so we romanticize death. I want you to consider with me this morning a man who failed to solve death. A man who failed also to romanticize death. In fact, a man who probably experienced the least romantic death you could possibly experience, short of being crucified. His name was Stephen. If you have your Bibles, I suggest you open them to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be in the last part of Acts chapter 7. Uh, If you have a a Bible like this or a Bible on your phone, whichever it is. But open it up to Acts chapter 7. And while you look at that, look for that, I want to give you some background on this man, Stephen, who's going to allow us to consider death, hopefully in a new light. Stephen was one of the first deacons of the church. He was commissioned with six others as the growing church realized that it was having a hard time both proclaiming the gospel and caring for its own members. The presenting problem was the Greek widows were not being cared for in the weekly distribution of food and other goods to the needy and to the poor. This wasn't um, intentional. It wasn't subversive. It was simply the fact that it was too few people doing too much work, and this one group of people got overlooked. The Greek widows did. And so the apostles considered this issue, and they concluded that for them, their first order of business did not need to be caring for the widows. Their first order of business, their God-ordained order of business, and Acts says that this seemed good to the Holy Spirit, was to proclaim the gospel, to preach the word of God. And so they divided up their ministry. The apostles would continue that. They would continue their devotion to prayer, their devotion to the preaching the word of God. But the church was to raise up, pick out seven men, and these men had to be of good repute, They had to be full of the Holy Spirit, and they had to be full of wisdom. The church would raise them up to serve the needy and look after the concerns of the community. In addition to that, these men would also continue in the preaching of the gospel. So seven men were chosen, they were commissioned, and they were sent out to minister. And among them was a man named Stephen. And he went out, and Scripture tells us he was proclaiming the gospel... And performing many signs and wonders. Now Stephen gets accolades in Luke's account. Um, more accolades than most people get. Luke, you, as, as you remember, he authored a gospel, the gospel of Luke. But he's also the author of Acts. It's sort of like volume two of his gospel. And it accounts the spread of the church. And he speaks very highly of Stephen. He says that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. He says that Stephen was full of grace and power. He says that when Stephen was on trial, it was observed that his face was like the face of an angel. All of these accolades in one short chapter of Scripture. Now imagine that you were a Jewish leader of the day. You're having enough problem with these Christians... And now you have Stephen, 
And imagine how much that would irk you and bother you. That here you have angel-faced Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, going out and doing signs and wonders and subverting everything you have tried to accomplish in your whole life. No, they weren't happy with Stephen. And so they seized him. <clears throat> they had him arrested. And they falsely, falsely accused him of speaking against Moses, of speaking against the temple and so he's on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and the high priest invites him to respond. And so the beginning of chapter 7 is this now famous um, response. It's a sermon even of Stephen where he actually defends the truth about Moses. Moses is a pointer to Christ. And he argues against the priority of the temple. The temple is just a foreshadowing of the heavenly realm. God doesn't live in places made by human hands. He lives in the glories of heaven. And then he closes with a bit of a rebuke. And I'll just simply read that to you and see if you could understand why perhaps they were a little upset. He says to the Jewish leaders, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who, by the way, you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law did not keep it. So they were a little upset. In fact, it says, verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged. and They ground their teeth at him. And as Stephen speaks of seeing Christ at that moment of his death, the, the leaders respond. They cried out with a loud voice, and they, they stopped their ears, and they rushed him. And they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. A violent death where he was hit repeatedly by stones. We're not talking like gravel. We're talking rocks. Thrown at this man until he died. But in a fascinating twist, this terrifying murder of Stephen fueled the fire for the growth of the church. It scattered many of the followers of Christ all around the known world, but they did not leave afraid. They left proclaiming the gospel. Many of them would face the same fate of Stephen, and yet they still preached Jesus. And this moment, this witness of Stephen, the first martyr, would have a lasting impression on the heart of one man in particular. And we'll come back to him in just a moment. So the question that this passage leaves me with is, is this. What is it about Jesus that would allow Stephen to approach his death with such confidence and with such peace? Well, I want us to consider Jesus at the moment of Stephen's death. The first thing we notice is this. At the moment of his death, Stephen saw the living and reigning Christ. He saw the living and reigning Christ. Look at verse 55. But he, referring to Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah who has been raised now into heaven, has been seated at God's right hand, the place of power, the place of rule, the place of triumph. And so when, Jesus, and when Stephen looks into heaven and sees Jesus at the right hand of God, he sees the man who is ruling over all of history. These Jewish leaders have no power except the power that God gives them. But the power of Christ reigning at the right hand of God is the power over the whole universe. And so as Stephen considers these events that he knows is coming, he realizes that the Christ he has faith in is the one ultimate power and authority. And that's the one who he will answer to. And that's the one who is with him in this dire moment. So Stephen can have peace in death because at the moment of his death, he sees the reigning and living Christ. Secondly, at the moment of Stephen's death, he is actually longing for an opportunity to join Christ in the heavenly realm. Let's read on to verse 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Remember Jesus as he died on the cross? Into your hands I commend my spirit. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen was ready. He was ready on that day at that moment to be received into the welcoming and open arms of Christ. And that gave him peace at his death. Now, to be sure, there is a, a tension, and Paul describes it in, in Philippians as he's contemplating his, um, the fact that he was in jail, certainly wondering about his future and possible execution. And, and he, he's going back and forth, and he says, Friends, look, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is, is to preach the gospel, to be with you. But to die, that is gain. That is gain for me. That is better for me. What, what am I to do? And he concludes, I will seek life. I will try to stay alive. I will try to do this because it's better for you. It's better for you that I can proclaim the gospel to you, although it's better for me that I might go and see Jesus. And so at the moment of his death, Stephen knew that he had walked the good walk. He had fought the good fight that he had lived for Christ and now his death was to be gain. And so he longed for Jesus and to join him in the heavenly realm. And then finally, at the moment of Stephen's death, he was empowered to be a witness for Christ. He was empowered to be a witness for Christ. Uh, verse 59. Um, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then on to verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Again, think back to Good Friday. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
So Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He was bearing witness to the grace of Christ, even as these men stood on the hill throwing stones at his head, even as he bleed from his head and his body, he asked for God to forgive the men who were throwing the stones. He bore witness to the grace of Christ. And there was a man there watching this, watching Stephen, watching his witness. His name was Saul, right? And so it says a couple things about Saul. Um, They cast him out of the city, the leaders, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there, and he was was the the caretaker of the garments of these people. Does that indicate some position of authority? We're We're not sure, but he was there, and he was watching, and he was observing. And then if you were to read on to chapter 8, verse 1, it says this about Saul. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Well, as most of you know, Saul would go on to have quite an experience of Jesus himself. Converted on the road to Damascus, right? And this man, Saul, who was persecuting the church, would come to be known as Paul, the great defender of the faith, the great missionary who spread the gospel to the known world, the man who's responsible for two-thirds of our New Testament, the, the man that if you had to point to a single man besides Jesus that changed the course of history, you would point to Saul, Paul, this man who watched Stephen die. And Paul goes on later to recount this experience and said he saw Stephen as a witness to Christ. And so Augustine would reflect on Paul and say, it is, it is because of the prayer of St. Stephen that we have been given the witness of St. Paul. An amazing moment. At the moment of Stephen's death, he was invited to bear witness to Christ. So what do we see? Well, we see in Stephen a man who was not out to solve death. Okay, if we're out to solve death, I think we're going to be out of luck. Stephen was not out to solve death. Instead, we see a man in Stephen, we see a man who knows that death has been defeated. It's not a problem to be solved. It's an enemy to be defeated, and it has been through Jesus Christ. Stephen is a man for whom death does not have the last word, a man for whom death has no sting, a man for whom death has no power. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in Stephen's life, he's able to see at that moment the living and reigning Christ. He's able to long for an opportunity to be with Jesus, and through his death he bears witness to, the Christ, to Christ so that others might believe. What then are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with Stephen? Well, I want you to leave you with two things that you might bring home with you. The first one is, in light of Stephen and how he responded at the moment of his death, we need to realize that we are invited to live as a people who are no longer slaves to death. We're no longer slaves to death. Friends, why do you think the Roman Empire lined their major highways with crucified criminals? 
It was a reminder. It was a reminder. Stay in line. Stay in line and you'll, just, you'll be just fine. But if you cross us, we have the power of death over you. It was a reminder of their power. Don't you see? That's why Christians were such a threat to Rome. Because they didn't believe Rome had any power over them, not even the power of death. Rome could not control them with the fear of death. And so they went out and they would boldly proclaim the gospel and many of them were murdered for it. And even as they were murdered, the church wasn't squashed. The church exploded. It exploded. It led the theologian Tertullian to say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Because they did not have a fear of death. I think too often our less than persecuted Western society, we live our lives in slavery to death. We're afraid of that one event that we all experience and yet none of us can control. And so too often it dictates where we live, where we travel, who we associate with. And now just to be clear, we do have earthly responsibilities. We have been given charge and care over people and things that are important. And Paul himself even says, look, it's better for me to live. And so you wouldn't advocate recklessness, a fearless abandon to do whatever you want. However, however, when our fear overrides our ability to preach the gospel, there is a problem. When someone misses out of the salvation that Jesus Christ has to offer because we're afraid to die... There's a problem. Friends, the worst that the world can dish out to us is death. And that enemy has been defeated through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We're no longer slaves to death, friends. And then finally, we're invited to know the one who has power over death. And and so I'm not so naive to assume that every single person in this room knows the grace and mercy of Christ and has the hope of everlasting life. And so I just want to tell you this one thing. Jesus Christ has defeated death. And all of those who have faith in him, anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, who receives his forgiveness on the cross, and who who is invited into his resurrection power, you will experience life everlasting. And that future hope you have will transform who you are today. And so if you're here this morning afraid, afraid of Death, afraid of loneliness, afraid of all sorts of things. I can only imagine the fears that you might have. Know that all of those things have been defeated in Jesus Christ. And come be a part of this community who loves like he loves, who gives their lives like he gave his, and who hopes together for the everlasting life that we'll experience through Jesus Christ in our resurrection that is to come. Let's pray.